Alrighty, good evening, church family. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for today and every day. But thank you that this is the day, Lord, you have given us, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your keeping power, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would um, continue to encourage our hearts, Lord, through um, the book of Second Kings and Pray, Lord, that you speak to us, Lord. We, we need your word, Lord, in a busy world, Lord, with all the things that go on in one day. We need more of you, Lord. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would um, settle our hearts before you in a way that we could have a sense of your presence, Lord. You see, two or three are gathered in your name. You're in the midst. So how much more in this room with all of us in here that Lord, that you can be right in our midst, and so, Lord, we, we, we love you. We honor you, Lord. Lord, we honor you, Lord, and, Lord, bless this time, Lord, and as David prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, I do pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. We continue to study Kings, Second Kings, um, King Joram, who reigned in Israel. Because you got, when you read this, King Joram, King Jehoram, the same person, but in the southern kingdom was a King Joram, and you know, some say his name was Jehoram too. Same names, they reigned them around the same time. So you can get confused a little bit if you read this chapter when you get towards the end. So they, two different kings. You know, <clears throat> one would die an awful death, and the other one would be slaughtered. So I mean, they both died. You know, they you know, but <clears throat> he reigned from it, some say from 849 to 843, according to Bright. So I got a book home and it tells you when each king reigned, but it's about four different views. A couple of them may have the same dates. Two of them have different dates. So it's, it's a bunch of dates they have that all of them have, like, different time frames while, how they reign. One of the guys said that he reigned from 851 to 842 B.C. But whatever time he reigned, we know this is to be true for sure, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what we do know. Whatever time he did reign, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers did. But in this case, God gave him... <clears throat> two obvious warnings. You know, they were pretty obvious what God was trying to get his attention, hoping that he would repent. You know, the first of all, the army surrounded this city. And then secondly, there, you know, there was a famine in the land, and it became so bad that they started selling and eating donkey heads and dove droppings. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but that don't sound pretty good. Can cannibalism was rampant. <clears throat> but repentance was far from the hearts of the king. You figure like everything is going wrong, cannibalism, people eating their kids, and this is happening, that is happening, and lo and behold, there's just the same, same disposition about who God is. You know somebody's life is just falling apart? Just falling apart in every way. Their life is just falling apart. Nothing goes right. It's almost like a cart. The wheels is just falling off. And now you're just being drugged on the, on, the, on the metal. 
and you say, well, this card is fine. You, know, you kidding me? Some people's lives are like that. They, their lives are just falling apart. And <clears throat> they don't understand that it's God's chastening. You know, it's God's chastening. He can correct us. You know, there's storms of correction. There's storms that we didn't do anything, storms of perfection. But then, and, and then there's some cases where, you know, God is saying, I'm trying to get your attention because of my goodness. You know, because prosperity can become the precursor to, you know, for idolatry. You know how some people, they were doing good until they got something? And then you, you know, their whole life, they were just wonderful. You say, they're wonderful people their whole life. And, and then the minute they hit the lottery or something, or, or got a good job or some inheritance was left to them, then all at once something changes about them. Something changes, and some people can't handle prosperity. And here in this, you know, this king was one of those wicked kings where God was giving him chance after chance. You know, in chapter 6, verse 33, it says that, and while he was still talking with them, there was, a, there was the messenger coming down to him, and then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So he knew why he was in having all of his troubles. Surely it was from the Lord. And so when you get to chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shackle. Now this is in stark contrast of chapter 6, verse 25, when it says, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed, they, they beseeched it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shackles of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dub droppings for five shackles of silver. So here is a selah and two selahs of barley for a shackle at the gate of Samaria. So he's saying that the prices are going to tremendously drop. This is the word of the Lord. They was raking everything up because they didn't have nothing. So everything they sold was 10 times higher. You're buying donkey. Imagine buying a, a donkey head to eat and grilling it or something. I don't know what you get out of it. And it says, so an officer, this is one of Jerem's officers who took some, you know, who took on this same negative attitude that his, the king had. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This is the officer making a mockery of God's word, of the word of the Lord. Not believing that God could provide for them in the midst of this horrific famine. You ever thought about that? And yet God's word never returns void. Whatever he, he sent it out to do, that it will accomplish. You know, this officer is thinking, he's thinking that it's impossible for God to allow the prices of fine flour to fall, you know, fall down that low in a matter of one day. That, that's not even possible. Not knowing the power of God's word. God's word can change the inflation. God's word can change the economy. God can do whatever he wanted to do. And he, meaning Elijah, said, 
He's speaking to this officer. In fact, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there was four leprous men. Now Jewish tradition is interesting because Jewish tradition, because it's going to confuse some people, because the next chapter, Gehazi is going to pop back up on the scene. Jewish tradition says that these four lepers was, was um, Gehazi, rather, Gehazi and his three sons. That's what says in Jewish traditions, because he was a leper at this time. And it says that his sons, all of his descendants would be lepers. So if it's traditional, whether it's tradition or not, if, if, if it is Gehazi and his three sons, I, I like this part of the, the um, chapter. It says, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. So this is where the lepers sat at the eat. Look, the lepers sat at the entrance of the gate. And they would sit in the place where, especially the only way they got their food, they would throw garbage over the city walls, and all the lepers would hang around a certain area where the garbage was thrown over the walls. But the problem in this instance is, what was they throwing over the walls when people were eating their own kids? That's the problem here. The problem here is that if, if, if you were a leper and you was hoping to get some garbage thrown over the wall, you probably was getting like maybe a little thumb or a toe or something. With some ketchup, I guess it tastes all right. I don't know. And this is at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Meaning that, you know, they're going to die from starvation. And they are, you know, they're considered to be the outcasts of the whole entire society. These lepers, you have to, at 150 feet, unclean, unclean. At 300 feet, unclean, and clean. You know, a leper had to cover up. And you imagine, you know, the, 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 is the famine, animals dying. You know, they couldn't even find horses. A few horses survived, but they were eating horses. They were eating the cattle, the oxen that was, you know, mowing the, the you know, the, the, gra the grass and, the, and so forth from the fields. You didn't need oxen because the grass was all dried up during the famine. And you ate these skinny oxen. They, you know, it was a mess. And these lepers are here. You know, the, the lepers were those who, when the priests examined them, and, and, and if indeed the scale had spread, this little one spot over the skin, the priest need not seek for yellow hair, and he would say, he is unclean. So these are unclean men. And I love their story. And if it's Gehazi, you can see the grace of God. He says, if we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we should die there. And this, that makes sense. We, you're starving outside of the city gate. Go inside the city gate. You ain't going to eat any much more than what you're getting. The king, his administration, and the whole nation were all faced with the same problem. He says, and if we sit here, we die also. I like the plan. I like the way they think. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the um, Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. He said, well, if they kill us, at least we won't die from starvation. But if they keep us alive, at least they'll give us three squared meals a day. I like that thinking. So I would have surrendered to, hey, please don't kill me. I'll do anything you say. Just feed me. 
<laughs> That's what it's saying. And God is raising up these four lepers to open up the window of heaven. Look, in this country alone, there's 41.2 million Americans purchase food with the SNAP benefit. You know, SNAP benefit is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what some call it the EBT. But it's 41 million, 41.2 million Americas with food insecurities. 41 million. And this translates to 12.5% of the total um, U.S. population. All, on average, 41.2 million pop in population, 21.6 million households receive monthly SNAP benefits last year. 21.6 million. And it runs from October, and they talk about from October 21 to September 22. They kept the numbers in that sense. And the program operates in all 50 states, including the District of Columbia and Guam and in the Virgin Islands. So based on SNAP, there, you know, the, the states with the highest number of welfare, it's like welfare recipients. Recipients is California, 1.9 million, 1,911,000 households. Florida, 1,632,000. Texas, 1,595,000. New York and Pennsylvania compete the top five, no, complete the top five rather, with New York being 1,520,000 and um, Pennsylvania being 940,000 um, households benefiting from SNAP. And when they broke it down into ethnicities, whites about 37%, African-American 26%, Hispanic 16%, Asian 3%, and Native American about 2%. It's hard out here. People don't think it's hard out here. It is hard out here. You know, this place to some people that we live in called the United States of America is like a famine. It is hard. And some people don't think it is. They say, oh, you got a job, you get in your car, you got gas, you're riding it, and you're eating every day, whatever you want. You can throw food out. Some people don't eat, look at their plate, they don't like the food, just throw it in the trash. You know? I was at a meeting yesterday, they had all these sandwiches, and the lady said, we don't know what to do with those sandwiches. I said, miss, I know what to do with those sandwiches. The deli was a good deli. I mean, I ate one. I said, this is heaven. This sandwich is good. I wrapped all that stuff up, taped the bag, you know, and walked out of there with sandwich. I hate to see food thrown out. You know how many starving kids wish they could eat half of what we throw out? Americans waste more food than anybody in the whole world. And it's almost a disgrace to God's blessing, blessedness. I don't like this. And just throw it in the trash? One week, Herman got somebody said, no pizza. Nobody ain't getting no more pizza, no more Thursdays. They were throwing half the slice out, and, you know, and, 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 I, and I agreed with them, but then I felt kind of bad. I said, oh, no, some of the kids, some of them eat, you know. I said, well, maybe we should try. I don't know, you know. The teacher, he was trying to teach him a lesson about don't waste stuff. We could not waste stuff growing up. You ate everything on your plate, whether you liked it, or not. If you dropped a piece of bread, my mom always equated that to money. Pick that knuckle up there, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So it's God's grace that people have enough food to eat, because in Israel at this particular time, there was starvation all around, nationwide starvation. And it says in verse 5, and they, meaning these four lepers, rose at twilight. This is when most of the armies would be rested and sleep anyway. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the um, Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts, this is all the way on the other side, of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Samaritans to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians the, the Musrians, some think it's not Egyptians, the Musrians, that's what um, Mario F. Unger says in his commentary, that these wasn't really Egyptians, it, it, to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Now, it says God caused them to hear something. The last time God blinded their sight, remember? In chapter 6, now he's, called, he's messing with their hearing. Isn't that amazing, the miracles here? And you read Kings, it's like so many miracles that God is working behind for the nation of Israel. Here, and he shows his grace to these four lepers that nobody would want nothing to do with. They walk in, and when to their surprise they come, could you imagine you starving? You, you're ready to sell yourself to the next nation and say, look, just keep me alive, and you get there, they're all gone. They're all gone, and here you your three buddies, you're looking around, <laughs> we were starving, we was willing to do anything to eat, and look at this, this weird old country buffet. You know, you're just looking, wow. Everything they wanted, their horses, their donkeys, food, everything. And it says, and when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went in, notice, they went into one, one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing. And, and, you know, clothing would have been silk and linen. And they went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and they carried some from there also and went and hid it. This reminds me of one of the guys, you know, everything is left, to, you know, and you come in, in that, intact. I remember years ago, I was a young guy, and I used to work at this training store. I was a manager at KFC. I was about like 21, 22 or something. And I remember one time we got robbed. You know, they robbed this guy named George. George used to always talk a bunch of stuff. I don't like him, but he always talked to him. He used to always talk a bunch of stuff. Funny dude. He was assistant manager. I was assistant manager. And I worked split shift. He worked the rest of the night shift, and he closed the store. And they robbed him one night. And so me and the store manager, this guy named Ed, we came in the next morning. And to our surprise, the store was just like it was open. All the chicken was still in the window. All the coal. He left the store. He quit. We was calling him, he said, I'm never coming back, I'm out of here. Biscuits were still under the light and everything, he left the whole store like it was. <laughs> you know, all the stuff, the nuggets were still there, the display and everything. 
And this is what's happening here. They walk in and everything is intact. All the food is there, all the drinks they want, the clothing, the silver, the gold, only because God supernaturally, supernaturally made the Syrian army think that there was, you know, chariots coming after them or the, the Hittites was hired or the Egyptians or whatever army they formulate together. They thought that, you know, this army came and they just all, they start running and leaving everything and running for their lives. This is a miracle. Verse 9 says, Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. These are the lepers talking to one another. This day is a good day. It is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. It's better to be a herald tonight than to die with a, a full belly tomorrow, you know? These lepers, having plenty at this point, realized that there was still a famine. Listen to how they think in here. They realized that there was still a famine in um, Samaria. People dying and eating their kids and all these things. They had a heart. Isn't that something? They have a heart to go back and say, no, we got to tell somebody about this. We just can't eat all this stuff ourselves. They had a heart. I always say, if you ever get something that you didn't think you, if somebody walked up to you and gave you $100 and you didn't expect it, you probably should share it. Because it was nothing you had in the first place. It's an opportunity to be, it's a double blessing. You got blessed, bless somebody else. It says, so they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city, this is Samaria, and told them, saying, we went to the, Syria, to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore, now he got the wrong perspective, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Wrong perspective. See, when you're living in sin, every blessing God gives you, you think it's a trick attached to it. You can't believe that God could even be good to you. And this has happened to, to, jo, to Joram. This is what happened to him. He, he, he's in such deep sin. And here God does this supernatural miracle. And he thinks that, no, no, it's a trap. This is a trap. Isn't that something? He's suspicious. He didn't trust the word of the Lord spoken by Isaiah the prophet, remember, he says, tomorrow, this time, he, he starts off this chapter, starts off, hear the word of the Lord, you know, says, you know, says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah, a fine flower shall be sold for a shackle, and two sailors of barley for a shackle at the gate of Samaria. He didn't believe the word of the Lord. Most people don't. And one of his servants answered and said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Five? That's a shame. Look, they ate all of them. And, and look, 
they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed I say they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. He says, look, what are you talking about? Let's see in case these guys, if it's not a trick, give us the five little horses we got left over. We're going to ride and see, you see. That's what he's saying. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses. And I'm sure these horses is looking around probably saying, I, you know I mean? I remember Mr. Ed. I, I'm sure these horses is probably like talking to, I am so glad to get out this city. <laughs> I'm going to drink some fresh water. And the horses are like, man, because they ate my brother Bobby yesterday, you know. He says, therefore they took two chariots of horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. This is about 25 miles. And indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So Isaiah, notice what Elijah said. So Isaiah, fine flour was sold for a shackle. Two sayas, a barley for a shackle, according, notice, to the word of the Lord. God's word is to be trusted. His promises are faithful. Trust his word. If he said it, it will happen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. If God said it, it will happen. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. If he said it, it will happen. You read Titus chapter 1, verse 3 or 4. He says, God can't, he can't do this. He can't lie. God can't lie. He doesn't tempt us. He can test us. Remember his feet in the 5,000. He told Philip, you feed the people. Philip said 200 denarii. Where if it's not sufficient for these people, he said that because he was testing them because he knew what he was going to do within himself. He knew what he was going to do. He just tested. He didn't tempt them. God cannot lie. Now, the king had appointed the officer. This is the one who was mocking God's word. The king had appointed the officer in whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate. Remember, Elijah said, you know, it's going to happen, but you ain't going to live to see it. And this would happen. They stepped all over him. People running. It's food. Kill him. You know, running all over. He tripped and fell, stepped all on his head. And he died, just as the man of God, Elijah, had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two sayas of barley for a shackle, and a saya of fodden flour for a shackle shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God and said, not now, if the Lord, notice, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, um, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. And he saw it with his eyes and he died. Remember the prophecy by Ezekiel? Ezekiel told Zedekiah, in Ezekiel chapter 12, he tells Zedekiah, he says, look, you will go to Babylon, but you won't see Babylon. And what they did, he tried to escape. 
Because Ezekiel never calls him the king of Judah. He always called him the prince. So Zedekiah, this vessel king, tried to, tried to escape in the, in, the, in the plains. He got caught. They took him to Riblah. They executed his two sons in front of his eyes. And then they took his eyes out and took him to Babylon. He went to Babylon. He died there, but he never saw Babylon. Don't play with God's word. God's word never, ever, ever returns void. Whatever God sent it out to do, that it will accomplish. We can trust his word. His word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our, our path. You know, the psalmist says, the entirety of his word is truth. You can trust God's word. Don't read God's word, doubt in God's word. You read God's word as truth. Jesus' prayer was, Lord, the Lord's prayer is in John 17. And Jesus prays, he says, sanctify them by, thy tr- by my truth. Thy truth, thy word is truth. Sanctify them by my word, thy word is truth. Do you believe that God's word is the truth? That's the difference between somebody reading the Bible and saying, oh man, the Lord is really speaking to me. Then the next person reading the Bible said, I don't know what this is talking about. And just turning the pages, say, hocus pocus, hocus pocus. Ah, this is where the Lord wants me to read today. Instead of just praying and saying, Lord, let your word change me. Let your word change me. Let your word change me. Look, it says some bear fruit. You know, a sower and a seed, some fell on the, you know, on the, on the soil or on the wayside. The birds came and the soil and it, you know, it didn't have any root in it. And then some fell on the thorns where it choked because it became unfruitful. It didn't say that, that person wasn't fruitful. At one point, they may have been fruitful. It becomes unfruitful. But when the word falls on a good heart, Luke uses the Greek word kalos. An honest heart. The person that's trying not, they don't, they're not looking at what the preacher looked like. They're not looking at how mad they were when they walked in the door. It's the person that hears the word of God. And they block out everything else and they just hear the word of God. That's the person that bears fruit. One, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, but that's the person that bears fruit in their life. And their life, their Bible may be torn up, but their life is all put together. Don't say you go to Calvary Chapel and be, you hear the Bible week after week and live flat out in sin and say, oh, yeah, I, I, the Bible is good. That's a good Bible teaching church there. The Calvary's teach the Bible. I think you held accountable to more. You held accountable to a much higher standard. Because you hear the truth. The Bible says the entirety of his word is truth. And there's a verse, I think it's Psalm 1989, it says that his word is settled in heaven. It is settled in heaven. And here God has this prophet speaking to a, an apostate, wicked, idolatrous nation. And God goes so low with them that he talks about the price of flour. That's how much he loves them. Look, the price of, he, God can go so low with us. Just to get our attention. And you know what we do sometimes? I don't hear all that. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Then Elijah spoke to the Shunammite woman, this is 
whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. Is, is this another famine? Most people believe it is. And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years because the other famine that he made a proclamation of, he didn't say it would come last seven years. He didn't say that. He didn't even give us a precise time frame. Here's his seven years. Seven is the number of completion. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt. In the land of the Philistines, seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land, the land that she left. Then the king talked with Gehazi. We don't know if this is before or after Gehazi was pronounced a leper or is this something that happened in the past? We're not sure. Scholars debate over this. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. So we know that's Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elijah has done. Isn't that something? Like Herod wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. Show me a miracle like he's going to obey the word of God if he hear it in the first place. Just imagine that. Just imagine, you know, tell me all the great things that the prophet did and all the things you heard from the prophet you're not willing to do anyway. Isn't that something? How people say, I want to hear a great preacher. I want to hear a great sermon. Let me ask you something. You willing to do it? You know what we're learning? I was talking to a pastor about a week ago. And I don't think this is the case in this church, so I would never put this on our church. But... What he was saying had made had some validity to it. He said that, he said, I don't believe people come to church to hear the word, to do it. Because it's for instruction and in righteousness, for reproof and correction, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped. I don't think people come to hear the word of God to do it. I think people come to hear the word of God to see what they like about it. And I think there's some truth to that. Like Ezekiel, you know, a love song, you know. Because people can get immune to the word of God, and it no longer has any power. It's like almost, I'm here at church just to wait to get more fellowship after church to talk to people. Or I got something I want to sell. Or I got something I want to do. Or it's not, you know, this is what the average church listener is like. And I pray that we never train our ears to hear nothing but God's word. That we leave here and we look through the word and we read the word and we stand and tell me the other day. He said, I've started back taking notes again. And I said, yeah, I still take notes. I'm driving and I listen to Christian radio. I'll pull over and I still take notes. And I think people, somehow, something has happened in the church where people say, oh, you know, I just want to hear the music. I don't want no worship. Just give me all worship night service or something like that. Not the word of God. Are you kidding me? As messed up as people's lives are today. This is the world we live in. You can get more people to a concert than a prayer meeting. 
Amen, church? This is unbelievable. And this man here, he says, tell me, please, all the great things Elijah has, has done. Now it happened as he, meaning Gehazi, was telling the king how he, Elijah rather, had ins- has restored the dead, the dead to life. And that there was a woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king and for her house and for her land, this woman. And Gehazi said, oh, my Lord, oh, king, this is the woman. Just as he was talking about, you know, what Elijah did, raising this woman's son from the dead, the woman walks up. And this is our son whom Elijah restored to life. This is not a coincidence. You know that. Look, the Jewish rabbis used to say this, coincidence is not a kosher word. So this is not a coincidence, this is not by osmosis, this is divine. That he's telling the king, oh, he raised a woman's son from the dead, and here's a woman walking with her son. Say, hey, Gehazi, (laughs) hypocrite, you know. (laughs) And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until until now. And this is the reward of her faith and obedience because Elijah told her, Get out of here. This is seven years later. He said, get out. There's going to be a famine in the land for seven years. He said, all right. I heard the word of God from the man of God. I'm getting out of here. Isn't that something? The blessing of obedience when you hear the word of God? Blessings. This is the reward of her faith and obedience granted to the Shunammite woman from God Almighty. I read this. I get excited when I read this verse. I'm like, she said, he said, get out of here. She said, okay, that's the man I got. That's the same man that raised my son from the You know, you have a pastor minister to you and all kinds of things. And then when you hear something they don't like, you say, oh, I don't want to hear that. I like that pastor. But in this part, oh, who do you think he's talking to? I'm my own person. Lolly, lolly, golly, lolly, you know. Then Elijah went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? Now, people from other nations knew who Elijah was. Is that something? He didn't rub elbows with them. They came wanting to rub elbows with him. So Haziel went to meet him and told, took a present with him. And every good thing of Damascus, 40 cam, camels, loads. Wow, this is a lot. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover, re- recover from this disease? And Elijah said to him, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will surely will really die. And that sounds like an oxymoron or a paradox or something. So he's going to recover from the illness, but not from the slaughter. That's what he's saying. 
Because Haziel is going to murder Ben-Hadad. That's what he's telling into his face. Then he set his countenance in a steer until he was ashamed. Elijah looking at Haziel. And the man of God wept. It's interesting that he wept. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 19 when it says, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. This was years and years earlier. God knew that Haziel would become king over Syria after Ben-Hadad. He knew this. He knew this. And it says in verse 12, and Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil. Notice he's telling this man is going to be the next king. I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. They would take kids, how cruel this was. They would take small kids by their ankles and crash their skulls against the ground. They would take women that were pregnant and cut them right down the middle. This is cruelty. Elijah is weeping as Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem. In AD 70, when Titus Vespasian came in and the Roman army and it destroyed the city of Jerusalem and, the, and this temple, cannibalism was, you know, would be the means of survival and disease. Even during that time, all kinds of other things was taking place during this besieged by the Roman Empire against the nation of Israel. And Jesus wept. He, you know, when he goes in. And, he, and he's looking at Jerusalem. He's, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, those who stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her. How often I want to gather you as a hen, gather chicks under their wings. But you are not willing. But when you get to Luke 19, Jesus, it says that, you know, now as he drew near, he saw the city, the Bible says. He saw the city and wept. The, the, he, is, he convulsed uncontrollable weeping over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And here Elijah having the same heart, knowing that this man that God is going to raise up from Syria is going to be cruel, such great cruelty, to the nation of Israel. And he sees it. He sees it. He has the heart of God. But Haziel said, notice, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elijah said, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. God is raising up Haziel to be a chastening rod, listen, to judge Israel of their what? Their idolatry. Because at this point in Israel, you know what were their, their means of idolatry? Molech. Molech. I'm going to read something for you because I think it's important. In Deuteronomy, it says this, and I'm going to read Leviticus so you can get a picture of it. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this, verse 1 through verse 5, I'm going to read it. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, 
and cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So the Lord wanted Israel, when they went into the land, to destroy anything that was opposite of what God was trying to teach them. Because God realized this, that these nations would be more efficacious in the direction of having influence over Israel than Israel would have influence over them. If you're the only Christian somewhere and you hang around all sinners, you think you're going to convert all of them? I doubt it. They're all guzzling down. You're be like, all right. Then they're like, and when they went in, they were smaller than those nations. Those nations were mightier than they were. But all they, the, the battle was theirs to win because God was there fighting their battle for them. And they ended up being more engrossed with idolatry than the nations that they were supposed to destroy. In the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, it says, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You know what they were doing? Taking their kids to Molech, this statue like this. It would be burnt. Would, you know when something's so hot it turns blue? You ever turn on a gas stove and at the bottom of that stove is blue and then the fire is red at the top? This thing would turn basically blue. And what they would do, they would lay their babies on this hot thing and it would sear their baby to death. And the baby would scream and cry and they would have somebody on the side banging a drum as loud as they could to drown out the cry. And we shake our heads, oh, that's crazy. How could that happen? It's 50 million abortions in America. Last 26 years or so. And they look, Leviticus 20, I'm going to read this because I want you to read this. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2 through 4. Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from the people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he, is, when he gives some of his descendants to Molech, they, they, um, so they do not, and they do not kill him. Then I will set my face against that man and against the family, and I will cut off him from the people and all who prostitute themselves with him who commit harlotry with Molech. God said, I'll deal with the people who don't do nothing about it, too. 
The church is so silent about things. We shouldn't say nothing. No, the church should say some things. The church should stand up for righteousness. And we live in a world where the government has silenced the church because of their legislation. And we say, well, I can't say that. You know, the, you know what they say. It's a higher judge. There will come a day in the Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where it says, we rather obey God than man. I'm sure those days are upon this land now. And Israel was a wicked nation, and God raised up this man, Heziel, to be the chastened rod. That's all he is. It says, then he, Heziel, departed from Elijah and came to his master. His master would have been Ben-Hadad who said to him, what did Elijah say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But he didn't tell him the second part of it that he was going to be king. He didn't tell him that part and that he was going to murder him. He didn't tell him that part. But it happened on the next day that he, this Heziel from Syria, took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died, he, he suffocated the king, so it, wouldn't be look, so it wouldn't look like treason. And Heziah reigned in his place. Do you imagine that? Don't y'all get no ideals if you're mad at your husband. I'll fix him while you sleep. And in verse 16, the Holy Spirit takes us back to the southern kingdom for some reason. Um, Jehoram, who reigns in Judah, he's going, so this is the south. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, this is Jehoram and Joram is the same name. The son of Jehoshaphat began to reign as king in Judah. So one is the son of Ahab, one is the son of Jehoshaphat, but they really have the same name. Because Jehoram is also Joram, is the same name, the longer version of it. He was 22 years old when he became king, meaning in Judah, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Notice, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel because he hung with them. Birds of the same feather flock together, amen? My mom used to say, buzzers and eagles don't hang together. Buzzers like leftovers and eagles like love kill. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, and this is why, and this is his influence for walking in their way. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, Athaliah. You marrying Jezebel, daughter, man. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look, if you pick a wife and she got an evil mom, the apple don't fall too far from the tree. It don't fall too far from the tree. Because more is caught than taught. You pick a girl, she got a really nice mom, it's a good chance she might be a nice girl. If you pick a guy that like choke his father like choking people, he probably like choking people. And that's not generational, that's observation. Learn behavior. Okay, that's what you do when somebody makes you mad, you choke them, you choke them. I don't think no man has no right to put his hand on any woman. No man. 
for no reason. She hit me first, well, just leave. It says that he married Athaliah and did even the sight of the Lord, verse 19, yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him, as he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever, that lamp and that light would ultimately be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne of David forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over, over themselves. Edom, who was you know, paying tribute to Judah, pulls away to test this new king, whether or not he has any heart or not. This happens when dynasties change power. When one nation was paying tribute to this nation, the king who they were paying tribute to died. They'll say, let's, well, let's not pay nothing to see what happened. You know somebody, and they take your lunch money, and then they try to take your brother's lunch money. So I took your lunch money, I'll take your brother's lunch money. But your brother sock him in the eyes. I, I ain't my brother. So Joram went to Zer and all his chairs with them. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites, because they wouldn't pay him, who had surrounded them, and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram, and he led the nation for about eight years, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And you know what happened to Joram? When you read 2 Chronicles chapter 21, it's interesting. It says, after all this, the Lord struck him, with intest with, struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness. Oh, man, imagine that. That stinketh this. So he died in severe pain, and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his first fathers. He was 32, 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. They were happy he was gone. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of, his king, of the kings. This is one of them kings that were glad that he died. So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, this is in the north, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, this is back in the south, king of Judah, began to reign. So they got these two guys going back and forth. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. That was it. His mother's name was Ethaliah. That's what it's pointing to next week. We'll see her. The grandmother of Amri, king of Israel. Amri was Ahab's father. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, not walking according to God's word, but according to the wicked, idolatrous king Ahab, and did even the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab, now he went to Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hezekiah, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram, 
this is the other Joram, then King Joram of the north went back to Jezreel to recover from the wound which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Hezekiah, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, who only reigned for one year, 80, 40, 842 BC, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Yeah, he was sin sick. That was his main problem. Now somebody say, He's, that guy's sick, yeah. Sin sick. That's what he was. That was his main problem. Whenever we leave the city of peace, we go down. You leave Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salem, peace, city of peace. Whenever we leave the place of peace, you know where we go? Down. Look, you know what your peace is? How many of y'all want peace? Raise your hand. How many of y'all like peace? Raise your hand. Just raise your hand. High as you can. You want peace. You know what our peace is? Our communion with Christ. He is our peace. That's our peace. He says, the peace that I give you, the world does not give it to you. And the world shouldn't be able to take it away. You know, when the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but with everything and with, and everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, making your requests known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, and you use the word like to garrison about, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he says, finally, brother, you want to meditate on those things? Meditate on, on things of good report. Things that are lovely. You don't you know, meditate on the right things. And you'll have peace. Most people don't have peace. They look at TVs on horror movies and, you know, and, oh, God, you know, and then you get to thinking about stuff too much and you're overwhelmed. And God wants you to have peace. And the kind of peace that surpasses all knowledge. If you don't have peace tonight, say, Lord, you are my peace. You're the only peace that I can trust. Peace like a river attended my way, you know, like sea billows that roll, you know, that it is well with my soul. You know, that song written by Horatio Spafford, who lost his four daughters, is hit by a huge steamboat. And he writes, it is well with my soul. A year before that, he lost his son to scarlet fever. Lost five kids. And he writes that song, it is well with my soul. We need Christians to have peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And if you don't have peace, you got a spiritual problem. And that's within and not without. Amen? Let's stand up as we pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. The exact timeness of your word, Lord, and how it speaks to our hearts. How it settles us down, Lord. It teaches us the things we don't want to learn. But we can also learn the things that we may be able to teach. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. We know that your wisdom is good. Your wisdom is from above, Lord. It's not the wisdom of this world. The world gives us wisdom, but it's not the wisdom that lasts. It's not a wisdom, Lord, that counts, Lord, in the storms of life, in the things that we experience in this world. So, Father, I pray, Lord, you give us wisdom. You teach us, Lord. Teach us your ways, Lord. 
Help us, Lord, to learn your words, Lord. Let us praise you, Lord. Lord, teach us, Lord. Lord, show us, Lord, the things we should be around, the things we shouldn't be around. You said, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. I thank you for that verse, Lord. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. We love you, Lord. We honor you. We praise you. Lord, heal our souls, Lord. Help us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for all these people here that come to Bible study week after week, Lord. What a bless, Lord, add a blessing to their life, Lord. Lord, they go through, some bring their kids, they try to get here. Lord, let it be something that they can leave here and say, Lord, thank you that I was in somewhere else crazy. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you bless us. Bless the people here, Lord. Continue to use this church. Lord, this is a great church. So privileged to be a part of it. Thank you for the work that you do here, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we honor you. It is in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen.